Hello everyone and welcome to episode 57 of 10 Minute Country. The 10 things I've learned from watching Ken Burns' country music documentary. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode and it's a, it's a special one, it's a big one. Um, I've been watching the country music documentary by Ken Burns that aired in America last year. And um, I've got some thoughts on it. I've got a sort of uh, uh, a digest of uh, my feelings and ideas that arose whilst I've been watching the series. The, um, the annoying thing about watching the country music documentary over here in the UK is that we just get 50, 55 minutes of each episode. In America, it's a two-hour episode. So there's like 16 hours, uh, 18 hours of, uh, of country music history and analysis by Ken Burns. And it's been cut to 50 minutes uh, for each episode over here in the UK. I believe that's because of performance rights and licensing rights and things like that. I hope it's not because whoever did the cutting didn't think that uh, a European audience could cope with two hours per episode. Anyway, I was lucky enough to get the book for Christmas. I've got a massive weighty tome of hundreds of pages of the country music documentary uh, from my wife for Christmas. So that's a nice companion piece um, to those of you who have enjoyed watching the series on BBC4. I don't know whether it's still out there on iPlayer. Have a look if it is. Um, it's a fascinating look at uh, right back to the genesis of uh, country music. And so today's podcast is really, uh, I'm going to put to you the 10 things that I have learned about country music from watching the Ken Burns documentary. First thing I learned is that country music is a beautiful hodgepodge of immigrant music. You know, the fiddle came from Europe, banjo came from Africa... All its early stars, like Jimmy Rogers and A.P. Carter, Bill Monroe and Hank Williams, they all had African and American mentors. They all had African American musicians that helped them refine their styles or that who they looked up to and wanted to emulate. Um, and uh, it's you know those people gave um, the early country stars a real appreciation of the blues, and it's interesting in a way, how we criticise modern country musicians when they use elements of hip-hop or R&B rhythms in their music because the blues and um, you know music from all over the world and instruments from all over the world was what helped uh, put country music together in the first place. The second thing that occurred to me is that it's a genre obsessed with authenticity and the truth and its roots. But one person's truth is another man's lie. Uh, most of its roots and, and its truths are grounded in everyday American life. It's the story of the farmer or the factory worker or the family. Barrooms and church halls are where you'll find the beating heart of country music. And it's like having, you know, the, the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulder. Uh, the barroom styles, the church styles, the gospel influence all go together to create this thing that we call country music. Um, but, it, you know, there, it's just this hodgepodge of ideas and emotions and behaviours. And there is no real truth, to me, to country music. There's no real, this is what you have to do. This is who you have to be. This is what you have to wear. 
it's such a wide umbrella that, uh, and I think that's what really appeals to me. I love the fact that Roy Rogers, the singing cowboy, is a country musician, but so is Chris Christopherson, the tortured songwriter of the 70s, and the sort of hippie, anti-Vietnam, uh, folk-orientated writer. And that's what country music is. There isn't any truth to country music. There isn't, you know, you shouldn't listen to those voices on the internet going, country music is this. It's not. Country music is everything. It has to have certain sounds, certain styles. There are parameters to it. But it's probably, I think, the widest musical genre that I've ever listened to in my entire life. The third thing that has occurred to me is that country music has always been manipulated and manufactured by labels, radio and other outside forces. You know, most of the radio stations that sprang up in the South in the 1920s were just offshoots of shops and companies trying to peddle products. So, for example, WLS Radio was actually Sears and Roebuck in Chicago, and it stood for the world's largest store. And WSM in Nashville, which would go on to broadcast the Opry every Saturday night, was actually owned by an insurance company, and the WSM is their motto, We Shield Millions. Country music has always existed to shift products. There's always been outside forces manipulating it. It's no more commercial now than it was back in the 1920s. And again, for all those people who say, oh, country music has lost its soul, country music isn't authentic anymore, it was being manipulated right back in the 1920s. There's no difference in the people behind country music. There's no difference in what other people are trying to sell, whether it's insurance or other related products. Country music has always been at the mercy of wider commercial forces. Another thing drawing some parallels, and the fourth thing that I've realised, is that artists in country music have always portrayed themselves as being more country or more cowboy or more authentic than they really are. Go right back to, you know, one of the heroes of country music, Jimmy Rogers. At varying times in his career, he was labelled as the singing brakeman when he was holding down railroad jobs in urban Mississippi. Then he became the blue yodeler later on in his career as he began to adopt sort of alpine yodels and uh, those type of sounds used by black artists and blackface minstrels into his act. And then he became the singing cowboy or the yodeling cowboy after he moved to Texas, hoping that the dry air would clear up his tuberculosis. That's Jimmy Rogers, his three different monikers throughout his life. None of them were particularly real or authentic. So why do we get obsessed now with the authenticity of whoever is singing country music? He switched personas, Jimmy Rogers did, as and when it suited his lifestyle. Look at Bob Wills, who's often credited with being, you know, the inventor of Western swing music. He went through numerous incarnations and styles before he found fame and riches fronting the Texas Playboys. And even the great Hank Williams flirted with lots of different looks and styles and sounds before he became famous. Perhaps the most famous singing cowboy of all was Roy Rogers. And yet he was just a construct of somebody called Leonard Sly, who in truth was just aping Gene Autry, who was, you know, the famous singing cowboy from the 30s. And yet Roy Rogers, certainly when I was growing up in the 70s, was this like iconic country and western figure. Well, that wasn't even his real name. And he wasn't even a cowboy. 
Look at George Jones, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Hank Williams Jr. They all started out in the country music business, very different versions of the people who they would become. And, and yes, part of that change was due to their own life experience and their evolution as musicians. But part of it was because they couldn't shift any records with the particular sounds that they had. So they tried different styles and different sounds. Country music artists have always been unauthentic. They go through series of styles and evolutions until they find one that suits them. So well, again, all those people looking at all the modern day artists of country music and saying, well, they're not country enough. Well, they didn't grow up here. Oh, they came from California. This has always happened in country music. And the documentary brings that home really well. The fifth thing that occurred to me watching Ken Burns' documentary, is that I think we're living through a similar time now to what happened to country music in the 1970s. There's a sort of fragmentation and blurring of the genre boundaries happening now that happened back in the 70s, uh, which was w when we saw the rise of that sort of pop-leaning countrypolitan movement. I think that sort of thing is happening again now. And if you look at, you know, the most famous countrypolitan producer and hitmaker was a guy called Billy Sherrill. He could easily be Shane McAnally or Dan Huff now. There's, there's, a, there's a style and an, uh, a, a sensibility in country music at the moment that has many parallels with what happened to the genre in the 70s. When Olivia Newton-John won the CMA Vocalist of the Year Award in 1974, tra traditionalists were outraged. And when John Denver won the Entertainer of the Year Award a year later, Charlie Rich burned the nomination card he was reading from live on stage in protest. It makes you realise that all the controversy and the furore that we've seen in modern times about the style and the sound of country music and about artists emerging like Walker Hayes or Dan and Shay is nothing new. It's all been done before and it's really, really boring. Talking about boring, that leads me on to the sixth thing that I have learned from the country music documentary. And that's that modern country artists are so clean and nice and family orientated and, dare I say it, anodyne compared to their historical counterparts. I, I know that, you know, that move towards vanilla is, is merely just a mirror of our own societal move towards political correctness. You know, we're all more polite and well-behaved and aware of each other's sensibilities as a society uh, than we were 30 or 40 years ago. And we're all living healthier as well. But bloody hell, the country stars of years gone by were hellraisers. Jimmy Rogers was a spender like a modern-day Kardashian or a Bieber. Bob Wills was a binge drinker and womanizer, and Hank Williams was addicted to both alcohol and drugs. And we all know the stories about Johnny Cash, George Jones, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, and even Hank Williams Jr. God, Johnny Paycheck shot some dude in a barroom argument in the 70s and went to prison for nine years. Today's country stars are so clean and healthy and fit and family orientated, and it's great, and I'm sure they're going to live longer, happier, healthier lives. Uh, and they do have to live in the glare of uh, the social media spotlight. But it's a shame, really. It does feel like, you know, they're, they're, they, there are not as many characters as they used to be in the country music of days gone by. The seventh thing that the country documentary taught me was that duets, collaborations and supergroups are a key component of country music. 
They'll never be perhaps as big a supergroup as the Highwaymen, which saw the coming together of Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. Um, but the history of country music is littered with collaborations, and that to me suggests that the people operating within the genre do see themselves as a family. You know, I hear that and I see it in interviews, and I hear it in the interviews I do where the, today's country musicians refer to themselves as a family. And I do think that there are bit large grains of truth in that. Going right back to the Carter family in the 20s, they worked with multiple musicians throughout their career. And, you know, Maybell Carter was still collaborating with musicians in the 1970s when she appeared on the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's Will the Circle Be Unbroken album alongside other legends like Roy Acuff and Earl Scruggs. And right up to modern times with bands like the Pistol Annies and the High Women, country music is a, is a, is a brilliant genre for collaboration. And I think the people in it do see themselves very much as a family, and I love that. Um... And don't get me started on what the best duets are of all time, because that's a whole different podcast. I love a good country music duet. So it's collaboration, not rivalry in this genre. And that's great. The eighth thing I've realised is that country music is a genre shaped, influenced and dominated by women. From Sarah Carter back in the 20s, who was annoyed and frustrated by her absent husband, through to Loretta Lynn singing about taking the pill. This is a genre where women's voices um, and the story of women's struggles has always been told. Tammy Wynette singing about divorce, through to Ashley McBride singing about murdering her daddy's lover in her new song Martha Divine. Country music has never shied away from celebrating and commiserating with women. It's a genre that's explored every aspect of what it means to be, to wom- to be a woman. You know, in modern times, we've seen Maddie and Tay, amongst others, protesting about the image of, of women in modern country songs. And writers like Brandy Clark really taking over the mantle from the likes of Dolly and Reba and writing about the very real issues that women have to face on a daily basis. And I love that about country music. You know, it is the voice of women and women's stories and always has been. The ninth and penultimate thing that I've learned from uh, Ken Burns' documentary is that the song is key to country music. The single song dominates country music, the hit. Country music is predicated on the success of the hit single. The, the art of crafting a whole album, I think, is often confined to the fringes of the genre or maybe even other genres like rock and pop. Hank Williams wrote hundreds of songs, but people largely just wanted to listen to Lovesick Blues, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, or Cold Cold Heart. The success of Elvis and Johnny Cash was based on their chase for hit singles. And indeed, if you ask people what Johnny Cash's best album is, most people, I think, are going to say that it's Live in Folsom Prison, which, whilst is a great album and is a snapshot of a great performance, it's ultimately a live album. You know, Nashville was and remains to this day a town full of hitmakers, people chasing the next big song. The, the craft of making an album in its entirety and of telling a story from start to finish is, is sometimes, you know, not what Nashville and country music is about. Sometimes I think producers and, and um, record labels get hung up on, you know, bunging an album out there that's got three great songs on and uh, an amount of filler. 
and and that bit makes me a little sad. Oh, you know, that uh, that the craft of an album is not something that country music is necessarily about. And if you're not convinced by this argument, let me ask you this: How many Dolly Parton albums can you name compared to how many Dolly Parton songs do you know? And speaking of Dolly, the final and tenth thing that I've learned from the Ken Burns country music documentary is that her and Garth Brooks are the greatest country artists of all time. Um, in Brooks's case, he was marginalised at the start of his early career for not being country enough, ironically. But him and Parton have gone on to become the goats of country music. Their voices, their storytelling, their emotive life performances, to me, make them the greatest two artists that the genre has ever known. I do think special mention should be given to people like Vince Gill and Marty Stewart for their tireless work uh, as musicians and as songwriters uh, in the country genre. You know, they, it's people like that that have built on the heritage passed to them by the likes of the Carter family and Roy Acuff and Bob Wills and Bill Munro and Hank Williams. But Dolly and Garth, to me, stand head and shoulders above any other artists in the genre as being the greatest of all time. Thank you to listen. Thank you for listening to my podcast today. I've brought it in at a rather respectable seventeen minutes. Um, so I've been James Dakin, and this has been Ten Minute Country. <laughs>